All right, um, we're going to close out this series today um, with some text from Paul in the book of Romans. So don't blink or you'll miss it. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Therefore, let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Started last or ended last week with um, an illustration from the Civil War, and I want to start this week with another illustration from the Civil War. Um, I've never been there before, but many of you probably have. Um, Gettysburg, the site of uh, one of the main battles um, in, in the Civil War in 1863. And one of the stories from Gettysburg, Gettysburg comes from a family, uh, the family of John and Caroline Rupp and their six children who lived in a two-story house um, on Baltimore Street, which is close to Cemetery Hill. Now, um, that doesn't mean hardly anything to those of you who've never been there before, and for those of you who have, you might remember this, but that puts their house on the fault line between the north and the south. Their house is where these two armies collided to fight this battle. In a letter he wrote to his sister Anne um, a couple weeks after the battle uh, that he labeled as a warm and uncomfortable situation. <laughs> In this letter that he wrote to his sister Anne, he described what happened to their house. He said um, that there were 330 cannons from the north, and there were even more from the south, lobbying cannonballs over his house, trying to take each other out. Um, his house, in his words, were riddled with bullet holes through the bedstead, which I'm assuming is the headboard. He told her on the first day of the conflict, which was actually um, Thursday, July 1st, 1863, the Yankees from the north were on his front porch. The rebels were on his back porch. They were firing at each other through their house. So he retreated to the cellar. And here, here, here was his exact words from the letter. The Yankees were in the front. The rebels were in the back. I myself was in the cellar. So you can see I was on neutral ground. And if you imagine John Rupp coming out of the cellar saying something like, hey guys, can we give peace a chance? <laughs> he would not be an agent of peace. He would be a victim of the battle. But sooner or later, you have to come out of the cellar and say something that you hope will bring people together. And so today, with your permission, as we wrap up this series, even a little bit next week, when we start a new one, um, I want as much as humanly possible in a room full of people with only one person talking to have a heart-to-heart -heart conversation. Is that all right? I, that's what I got, so... <laughs> is what I got, okay? See, see, when I heard that story about John Rupp, 
um, I, I, I started thinking about the last couple years of my life. And I thought, I know a little bit how John Rupp felt during that battle. I know, I know that feeling because for the last couple years, I've heard people on my front porch shouting about wearing masks and on my back porch shouting about not wearing masks. And I've heard people in my front yard lobbing cannons, um, shouting pro-vaccine stuff against people in the back shouting anti-vaccine stuff. Heard people on my front porch shouting Black Lives Matter, people on my back porch shouting All Lives Matter. I've had people in my front yard shouting, open the borders. People in the backyard shouting, build the wall. In the backyard, they're rioting in the streets. In the front yard, they're attacking the Capitol. And I just got to say, I myself went to the cellar. So you can see I was on neutral ground. And I just wonder, in hindsight, hindsight's a beautiful thing. In hindsight, I wonder if we were asking the wrong question. We were asking what instead of how. We, we were asking, what's your position on masks? What's your position on vaccines? What's your position on the quarantine? What do you think about this? What do you feel about that? When the better question is how. How are we going to treat people who have different convictions than ourselves? Because the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. It's about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is what we've been called to, church. So we're going to look at this in even more detail next week. But Jesus said, by this, all people will know you're my disciples, that you have the right convictions. By this, you'll know that, that all the world will know that you're my disciples if you let everybody know about your convictions. No, by this, all people will know you're my disciples if you love one another. According to Jesus, the sign of spiritual maturity was never about being right. <laughs> it's the ability to be in right relationship even with people you disagree with. I wonder if we've been so focused on picking sides that we've missed how the people of God are supposed to live and serve and love people and culture that we've been placed in. I wonder. Part of the problem is language. I'll fully admit that. That the English language, for starters, is often binary. Um, it doesn't have good words for the middle. Okay? Um, so, for example, when I say right, you say Okay, that too. Left. <laughs> Nothing wrong. You got it. You're good. That was my fault. I did not set that one up real well. Okay. Um, you, I say good. You say, okay, thank you. We got that one. Good. But if I ask you to come up with a word that fits in the middle, it's a little bit more difficult. In fact, English professors have gone to their classes and, and asked them to come up with polar opposites of the word. Uh, and then they ask them to come up with a word that fits in the middle of that, and the class goes silent. They, they come up with average or medium, but that doesn't always work when you're talking about certain things. We don't have language that helps us nuance our differences. So what happens is we jump quickly into two extreme camps. The, the, the obvious example of this is politics. It, it's an easy target. 
Um, our political leaders have modeled this for us. They've taught us how to fight with people with whom they don't agree. So uh, Stanford University did a study. They looked at every congressional speech from 1873 to the present. Some people have way too much time on their hands, <laughs> right? So the individual who led this study, he stood up in front of the class and he read excerpts from some of those um, congressional speeches asking the class to discern from the language alone whether the speaker was Democrat or Republican. And he said from 1873 to the early 1990s, the class was right about 55% of the time. In other words, they were right about as much as they were wrong. It's hard to tell. In, in 1994, something happened. The language started to, to polarize, and from 1994 to the present, the students were able to guess the party of the speaker 83% of the time. <laughs> language, even our language, has been hijacked and pushes us in one direction or the other before we've even had the chance to get to know the person who's actually talking or typing. If, and if you've led anything over the last two years, you know the danger of saying nothing because people will label you as complicit. But you also know the danger of saying the wrong thing because you'll alienate people. And if you're a slow thinker like me, if you're a slow processor, if you want to gather all the data, while you're doing that, people around you are forming opinions and proclaiming their opinions as right, and you just head to the cellar trying to stay on neutral ground. There was a time in the nation of Israel where this was the case. Um, in Judges 12, Jephthah was the ruler at the time. And um, he decided to go into battle against the Ammonites. He was a great warrior, great recruiter, great military guy, but he missed something in this moment. He forgot to ask the Ephraimites, which was a tribe inside the nation of Israel, to join him in the battle. They belonged to the nation, but Jephthah forgot to ask them to be a part of the battle. So they went to his home, surrounded his home, and said, we're going to burn your house down with you inside of it. Talk about giving peace a chance, right? He retaliates by recruiting the tribe of Gilead, the Gilead tribe, who seized control of the fords of the Jordan River, which is basically just the places in the Jordan River that are, it's, it's, it's slow enough and shallow enough to cross the Jordan River. So he places the Gileadites at these passages, um, which was the only way for the Ephraimites to get home to, to their hometown. And the Ephraimites came to the river. The Gileadite soldiers are there with swords, and they would ask them, are you an Ephraimite? <laughs> which, which is like asking, are you from the south in Gettysburg? Of course you're going to say no. And if they said no, the Gileadite soldiers would say, all right, say Shibboleth, which just means ear of corn. And you say, what in the world does ear of corn have to do with this? It has absolutely nothing to do with it, which is the point, which is the point. Because the Ephraimites couldn't pronounce the shh. They could only pronounce the s. And when they said Sibboleth instead of Shibboleth, they ran them through with a sword. 
They killed 42,000 of their own people that day. 42,000. Victor Hamilton's an Old Testament scholar. He says, out of all of the judges combined, over the course of 100 years, they only killed 15,000 of their enemies. In one day, in one battle, in one moment in the nation of Israel, (laughs) they killed three times the amount of their own people as they did the enemy over the pronunciation of a word. And you say, how in the world can you get to that point? Isn't that kind of where we are? I I, I don't see a whole lot of people carrying around swords today. But isn't that kind of where we are? the, The subject could be gun control, economics, race, climate change. We have loaded onto one opinion more than that opinion was designed to carry. I'm not saying those, those, those issues aren't important. They are. I'm simply saying they weren't designed to carry the amount of emphasis we put on them. We have made radical decisions. We have canceled people over the mispronunciation of a word. And it was, it was actually like this in Paul's day in Rome. Um, you had the Gentile Christians, the Roman Christians on one side, and then you had the Jewish Christians on the other side, and they weren't really getting along. The issue in that day was diet and days. Okay, Look at this from Romans 14, starting in verse 2. He says, One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. And you could add the word both on the end of that sentence. When it came um, to the diet, the Jews felt like the meat still needed to be prepared kosher. Like the details mattered. But oftentimes meat would come from pagan sacrifices in pagan temples. They would take that leftover meat and they would sell it in the markets. And people, meat was expensive. People were poor. And so they didn't have access to meat. So some of them were saying, I don't care where it came from. I need to feed my family. The Jewish Christians were saying, no, 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 no. The details matter. Where it comes from matters. It can only come from certain sources. And the Roman Christians hear this and they go, Meat is meat, man. Pass me some more. (laughs) When it came to this issue, Paul says, you're focusing on the wrong thing. When it came to the days, Paul says this in in verse 5, one person considers one day more sacred than another, another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. See, the Jews celebrated their holy day, their Sabbath, on Saturday. Some of the Romans were still practicing what they called lucky and unlucky days. And the Jews went, huh, well, if if you believe in God, you don't believe in luck. And they started throwing verbal grenades at each other. It it reminds me of a conversation I was in um, kind of in the middle of a few years ago, um, the issue was about having trunk or treat at ha- Halloween in our church. We used to do that. Um, that was something we did as a church for many, many years. And most people just viewed it as an opportunity to serve our community, you know, create a safe, fun environment for kids and families in, in our neighborhood. But there were, there were a few who wanted to, 
to stay away from that because, you know, it's, it's the devil's holiday. We shouldn't sacrifice our children to the devil for anything. And there was this back and forth. And I just wanted to go to the cellar. Like, all I could think was, it's not about demon worship. It's about free candy. <laughs> my, my allegiances are not to the devil. My allegiances are to Snickers and Reese's. <laughs> but either way, there were some deeply held convictions on both sides of that. Maybe there still are. Maybe I shouldn't have said that on tape, okay? I don't know. <laughs> but all that's changed is the subject. In Paul's day, it was diet and days. 15 years ago, it was Halloween. It's heavier these days but it still can't hold the weight of the division. The division is killing us. And, and Paul says, in every church, in every, every community, there are weak people and there are strong people. And as you read Romans 14, you're tempted to think that weak people are those that are conservative and they don't get to do very much stuff. And the strong people are those who are more free or progressive and they get to do everything. That would be wrong. That would be taking our 21st century filter and laying it over scripture. What we have to do is ask, what did the original audience hear? What did Paul mean? And what did the original audience hear? As Paul defines the weak and the strong, he says the weak are those who cannot discern between the essential and non-essential things. They're always drawing this short, straight line between their deep-seated belief and what everybody else should believe. Their, their, their tendency is to grab a verse, doesn't matter if it's out of context or not, but grab a verse and set it over their argument and say, well, the Bible agrees with me on this. It says it, it, says it right here. And then that puts us in a position where, well, I can't really argue with you because then I'm arguing with God. The weaker brother, the weaker sister holds other people to standards they themselves have decided to practice, and because they feel so strongly about it, they think others should feel strongly about it. And Paul tells them, stop passing judgment on each other when it comes to the issues of disputable matters, like diet and days. He says, stop it. Quit doing that.